Thank you, Lewis. I'll get situated here. And if there are any problems with the, uh, with the sound, someone uh, would email Lewis real quickly and let us know. But I think we've got some of these bugs worked out. I, I tell you, I am so thankful for Spate and for BJ, for Bill, who have put in a lot of hours on setting up these YouTube capabilities. Uh, actually, I'm not really here. This is a hologram. That's the, that's the one joke that may translate across the, uh, the YouTube. <laughs> I told Betsy that there would just be a handful of people uh, here, really those who have part in the service. So I will be looking at the camera, and I'll be looking at the folks who are here. But uh, when I told Betsy how many people would be here, she said it seems like old times. It kind of does. Uh, we, we started out this way. Albert Moeller uh, observed that even though broadcasting sermons is, is at present uh, uh, necessary, listening in is not the same thing as listening among. There's a communal aspect of that, and we want to maintain that as much as possible. And as Lewis mentioned in his prayer, and as we were discussing in our elders meeting, uh, the, the, the idea of, of social distancing is really physical distancing. We don't want to be socially isolated from one another. We want to maintain those connections. I mean, think about this. How long did it take for our lives to change, to change what we think about, what we talk about, how we live, what we touch, where we go. Uh, how long did it take me and Betsy to go from thinking that the media is hysterical uh, to uh, concern that two of our three children may not have a livelihood? Two weeks. That's all it took. Everything is now different. One theologian said, we do theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. It's much harder to wait for a crisis and then start building that foundation in the dark. It can happen, but that's not God's plan. Jesus taught the truth to the disciples for th three years, and they didn't always get what he was saying, but as he taught them that truth, they were thinking in their minds, this is all very nice, but how do we process this? And it'll probably never apply to us. But then, as Jesus was telling them, you will need this, then the dark came. And they needed that truth. So the if the foundation is there, you have something immovable, something unchangeable, something indestructible on which to stand. And very appropriately, the verses that we're going to be studying today as we continue through the book of 1 Peter, and it just feel, does feel a little odd to be teaching uh, in, in this format uh, with, with different venues, but we're going to be teaching through verses 10 through 16 today. These verses are all about what we are to think and how we are to live, especially in hard times. Even in terms of Peter's audience, worse times than we're in now. In times when being a follower of Jesus really costs you. Peter's description in, in chapter 1, verse 7, is that of gold purified by fire. When Betsy and I were uh, living in Dallas, Texas, she, was, she worked at a, at a dentist's office, and one of her jobs was uh, to work in the lab, and she would take small gold ingots and help make them in the form of um, uh, tooth implants. And I watched her do this, and what she would do was to take that gold and apply fire to it, and the fire did two things. 
first of all, it would remove impurities that would bubble to the top. And secondly, it would make that gold itself malleable, moldable into the purpose for which it was going to be used. So that's what the flame did. Peter's analogy when he speaks about gold applied to, uh, flame applied to gold, uh, is that our trials do two things, I think. First of all, the trials that we face remove impurities uh, so that we can be holy for I am holy. And secondly, they make us moldable and usable, our minds girded for action, ready and willing to be used by God for his glory. So here's where I'd want us to come out of our study today. God uses suffering to transform us so that our hope is visible to our unbelieving friends and relatives who have just now learned that the things in which they trust provide no safety net, that they are vulnerable. How can God use you and the way that you handle this situation to glorify him? In chapter 3, Peter says this, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, listen, to give an account for the hope that is in you. So they see it in you, and they want to know what makes you tick. And he continues, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience. This is how you are to live in the midst of that trial. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So that's what we are being prepared for. Now, we have studied thus far verses 1 through uh, 9 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is writing to believers who are beginning to experience persecution, that is being the victims of malice of people who hate them. And he reminds them in verse 3 that we have a living hope. We live by faith, not by sight. That's in verses 8 and 9. And that triad of faith, hope, and love that we see in verses 1 through 9 is anchored in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in verse 2. See, all of this connects together. We have been born again by God's initiative, not ours. That's in verse 3. God is the one who has given us an inheritance that is imperishable. That's in verse 4. All the things that we value here, like gold, in verse 7, or a house, or cars, or retirement plans, or health insurance, or whatever, all those things he calls perishable. So that we reorder our minds and we don't place our trust here. That is, in a sense, in our thinking, in one sense, we're, we're no longer earthlings, right? Our trust is not here, but there. In that which is imperishable, that's in verses 7 and 8, which is undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Now, that's the big picture of where we've been thus far. Almost parenthetically, here in verses 10 through 12, Peter asks, he pauses and asks, do you see how unusual this is, how special this is, how unique this is, how amazing is this grace? And he makes the point that while this may not be something that is the way that you look at your place in God's plan, your inheritance, here's his point, this is how the prophets look at it. This is how the angels look at it. So let's see what he's getting at 
in these verses and immerse, our, and immerse ourselves in this text. In verses 10 through 12, the point is, keep your suffering in perspective. And then he offers these two comparisons, prophets and angels. Keep your suffering in perspective. As to this salvation, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, that is the circumstances surrounding when and who, they want to know how this story unfolds, what the big picture looks like, what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I want you to notice three important things here. First of all, the phrase, the Spirit of Christ, is used only here and in one other place in the, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. And, the, and it, the Spirit of Christ highlights the truth that the Holy Spirit was sent from Christ and witnesses to Christ. And my point is that the Spirit inspired God's Word through the prophets. And Peter himself described that process in 2 Peter 1. He said, we have the prophetic word more sure, more sure, as he's describing there, than the eyewitness testimony that he experienced at the transfiguration, more sure than what he heard at the transfiguration. God's word is more sure than those things. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining into a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Why is this true? Because Peter continues, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, and remember he's talking about the prophets, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own origination, that's what the word means, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the word moved by means borne along. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 27 when the ship that Paul was on was about to, to uh, shipwreck. It was moved along by the wind. Well, men moved along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So for the first point the Spirit of Christ is within those prophets. And his first point is that the prophets spoke what the Spirit moved them to speak. And that's what God wants us to know. And secondly, notice that they spoke about the sufferings and glories of Christ. Both are plural words. The sufferings of Christ were focused on the cross when he died for our sins. But they didn't begin at the cross. And the glories of Christ extend beyond the ascension. But that's a study for another time. Third, notice the point that he makes that the prophets did not always understand their own prophecies. Being a prophet meant that God had given you a message, not that you understood the message in every detail. Jesus told his disciples, from Matthew 13, truly I say to you that many prophets desired to see what you see but did not see and to hear what you hear but did not hear. It's like the prophets were entrusted with a puzzle piece and they could see the puzzle piece that was in their hands very clearly but they didn't know what the big picture was. They didn't know how their piece fit into the big picture. Now, after the incarnation, after the cross, after the resurrection, listen to this. Jesus is speaking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and they don't know who he is. And these two men say to this to Jesus, 
But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women who also had said, but him they did not see. And then listen to this. Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in, now get to what he's saying here, all of the prophets have spoken. All those puzzle pieces coming together, pulling together, making up the big picture. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses, that's the book of Genesis, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Later on, Jesus said to the apostles, and this is another passage, both of them are out of Luke chapter 24. Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See what he's doing? Putting those pieces together to see the big picture. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he concludes. And then later he says, and you shall be my witnesses. This message became the preaching of the apostles. This is what Peter preached in Acts 3. Remember, Peter is the writer of this epistle. But in Acts 3, Peter was preaching in Jerusalem, and he said this in Acts 3, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has now fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. And then later he refers to all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. This is a huge deal. And the reason why I'm making this point about the prophets is this was a huge deal for, uh, for Peter as well, for all the New Testament uh, readers. And, and, and I want you to see what's important here. In 1 Peter 1.10, Peter sums up all that the prophets were speaking about in one word. Look in verse 10. That word is grace that's it that's what it all comes down to peter uses this word 10 times in this book when paul wrote the book of romans in that section where the plan of god was unveiled for both the jews and the gentiles to be together in this one body in that section romans 9 through 11 he cites about two dozen old testament passages from nine Old Testament books. And no one prophet had all the pieces. But the pieces fit together into one picture, really one portrait. And that portrait was a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ with the title, Grace. The undeserved, unearned favor of God. Now look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves. And to keep our analogy, 
this would mean that they were shown that there was a bigger picture which God saw and that they could trust the sovereign Lord who was the designer of the whole thing. So they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he adds this, this strange statement, things into which angels long to look. So this paragraph has mostly been about prophets. And then he adds this statement about the angels at the end. They long to look into this. And, and, and the word look is the same word that it's an unusual look, for, uh, unusual word for seeing things. It's the word that was used of John uh, the Apostle when he arrived at the tomb of Jesus and he did not go in. Remember, it was, it was daybreak. It was, it, the sun had just come up. Things could be seen uh, around him. It was bright. And the tomb itself was dark. And he stood outside and he gazed intently as his eyes were trying to adjust to the light to make out the details of what was inside. That's the word that's used of what the angels want to do with the gospel. The angels long to look into this plan. What, what the prophets longed to know, we know. What the angels longed to experience, we experience. Peter doesn't explain why they do, other than to tell us that the angels are just riveted by that unfolding drama of human redemption. Have you ever stopped to reflect about how blessed we are materially? Of all the billions of people over history who've been born into circumstances and have lived painful, short lives, that we were born in the 20th, or in a few cases, the 21st century. Most of us were born in the United States with all the amazing amenities that make life longer and much more pleasant? Do you ever stop and, and, and reflect on that? I mean, would all the people in all of history want to be in your shoes? Yes. In fact, would all the people in the rest of the world now want to be in your shoes? Mostly, yes. Well, what Peter is saying is this is a spiritual truth. All those Old Testament heroes of faith, all those prophets that you admire, want to be where we are. The prophets would have loved to live where you are now. The angels would love to live your life, and they change places in a nanosecond to glorify God in the way that only we can. So he's saying, I want you to think. I want you to reflect. And in light of God's amazing grace, I want you to live this way. And what he's speaking about is we, and he's speaking to these believers who are scattered abroad, who are beginning to experience persecution, he's telling them, we are so blessed. Is life beginning to become hard for you? Yes, it is. But we are so blessed, and we have a message of amazing grace. Therefore, in verses 3, 13 through 16, he says, I want you to prepare your minds for action. I want you to fix your hope on the right thing. And as God says, he wants you to be holy, for he's holy. So here's the deal. And, and I think this is why this is so relevant to us. A fire has now been lit 
under these Christians, and it's lit under us as well. Exposing, number one, that there's no security to be found in the things that we trust in in this world. And secondly, that God will use the fire of suffering, like gold, so that we can fulfill a greater purpose and be moldable to that purpose. Every one of us, every one of us can now say, my future may be different from what I expected. So, how can God use this present inconvenience, suffering, however you want to label it, to enable us to be more like here, more like him? Years ago, uh, revered pastor John Piper was diagnosed with cancer. And he preached what was, I think, now known as his best-known sermon, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he was speaking to himself. The point is, whatever your trial may be, don't waste this. God has his purposes for you, and you're the gold that he's going to refine. You are his precious child that he will teach and love and use for his purposes. Now, let's summarize where we've been so far and what's come ahead. In verses 10 through 12, keep your suffering in perspective. Look at the prophets. Look at the angels, because they're looking at you. Look at the blessings that you have. Look how God can use you. Keep your suffering in perspective. And then verses 13 through 16, keep your minds fixed on your hope, God's amazing grace. So we're going to dip into these verses for a few minutes now. Therefore, in verse 13, and he's tying this back to what's gone before, unlike the prophets, you do see the big picture. Unlike the angels, you do experience salvation. In light of... In light of these blessings of grace, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And these three things in this verse are worth unpacking very carefully. First of all, prepare your minds for action is a translation of girding the loins of your mind for action, which is the way it may read in some of your Bibles. To gird your loins meant to gather your robe and to fold the ends of it into your belt so that you could move more easily for work or for battle. To prepare yourself for action. Don't be passive. Be active. That's what he said. We'd say roll up your sleeves, but it's even more than that. The, the, the word picture is pretty rich. It carries the idea of getting rid of or removing or putting in its proper place anything in your life that might hinder your race, that might dilute your focus on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, it's described as that which easily entangles us as you run your race, putting the other things aside as you fix your eyes on Jesus. So whatever that is for you in your life, either, first of all, get rid of it, or secondly, put it where it needs to be in your thinking. In, in light of, of the coronavirus, Prepare your minds for action, he'd say. Secondly, keep sober in spirit. Literally, the meaning is don't get drunk, but its metaphorical meaning is keep a clear head. Keep sober in spirit. Keep a clear head in contrast to hysteria. Use your brain. In chapter 5, verse 8, he uses the same phrase. Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
So use your mind. If there's a prowling lion out there, don't send your kids outside to play, right? So don't get carried away with mindless hysteria, but in light of COVID-19, keep sober in spirit. And I'm going to make an observation about the Greek text here. So those of you at home, uh, don't let your eyes glaze over. Uh, this is what I do, you know. But, but this is worth it. This is worth it. There are only two imperatives in verses 13 through 16. The two imperatives are fix your hope and be holy. Those are the two imperatives. The other verbs, participles mostly, depend upon those two. It's kind of like in the Great Commission, the only imperative is make disciples. So in Matthew 28, literally it says, as you are going, make disciples. Well, here, that's what this sounds like. As you are getting ready to take action, and as you are keeping a clear head without getting carried away in hysteria, here's the imperative, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope, not partially. There's a preeminence that God is claiming here. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is being brought to you. Where's your hope? Is it in the security of the stock market, uh, of the global economy, that solid foundation? Is your hope in even good things like the love and nurture of family and friends closely surrounding you, although now they can't? Where is your hope? Because even that is not good enough. Where is your hope? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. While we look not at, I'm sorry, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So where do we fix our hope? Peter tells us, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, it all comes down to that one word that sums up the totality of all of God's eternal blessings grace blessings which we did not earn which we do not deserve there's no sweeter word for us than grace and and god's grace is described in these ways in this way to be brought to you and actually that's not a future thing that's a present participle literally the grace that is even now bearing down on you you want the most literal reading that's it the grace that's even is just bearing down on you that's God's plan for you. It's yours now, and it's going to be realized in its fullness as you continue to become more holy until the time when you see your Savior face to face. So instead of despair, Jesus calls us to a living hope. Verse 3, and as verses 14 through 16 challenge us, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which are yours. And the word lust it's not just sexual, it, it, it's a word about longing. It's longing for power, for longing for money, longing for pleasure. In your ignorance, that were yours in your ignorance that is before you knew him. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. These verses are very rich, and there's, there's more here, and I'm sure Lewis may dip back into this. But don't you hear the echoes of Romans 12, 1 and 2? 
do not be conformed right to this world that's the same word that peter uses in first peter one it's only two times in the bible that word is used do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of god is that which is good and acceptable and perfect or as peter quotes it from leviticus you shall be holy for i am holy there are so many biblical words that describe our progress of becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification is the word, of course. Uh, being conformed to his image, to know him, to put off and to put on. Uh, all of those terms, uh, to, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to be filled with the Spirit, to let the word of Christ richly inhabit you, and on and on. But the bottom line word in both Testaments is the word holy. Be holy. Obedience from the heart to God's commands. And I want you to think with me for just a moment about God's commands. When you look at God's commands throughout the Bible, some of the commands that we see in Scripture are about our flourishing. We see that. Six of the Ten Commandments are like that. Even Leviticus 11 that says, don't eat bats. <laughs> that would be helpful. Um, so some of the commandments are about our flourishing. Some of the holiness commands of the Old Testament were given to contrast God's people with the practices of the surrounding cultures, like the Egyptians and the Canaanites. And some... I think intentionally make no good sense to us at all. Why can't we mix this fabric with that fabric? Why not? What's that about? Why can't we eat this food as opposed to that food other than bats? Why not? What does God have in mind there? Uh, Adam, you can eat of all the trees of the garden, but not that one. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is that that tree, Lord? Well, the answer is because God declared it so. Holiness is obeying God's word from the heart, even when it doesn't make sense to you. We're motivated to holiness because our Heavenly Father has granted us His amazing grace, which is even now bearing down on us. God, why did you save us? Because... I declared it so. We're justified or declared righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place for our sins. Why? Because he declared it so. He did. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Peter had failed Jesus in so many different times and so many different ways, and he knew that his only hope of rescue was to revel in God's amazing grace. Because through faith in Jesus as his Savior, God declared it so. God declared him righteous. And in verse, if we were to sum up what we have so far, in verses 10 through 12, keep your suffering in perspective. Think of the prophets and the angels. How's God going to use you? Secondly, in verses 13 through 16, keep your minds fixed on your hope, God's amazing grace resulting in obedience to God's word. Now, there's more here in this text, but I'm going to leave this text for right now to ask the question, where's your hope? 
Is it in the security of the stock market or of the solid foundation, that solid rock of the global economy? My hope is built on nothing less than stocks and bonds and no distress. Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where's your hope? I realize that we're facing some hard realities now. My family is. Many of you are. And, uh, I mean, your portfolio looks different today than it did last month. Your health concerns are different today than they were last month. Your job, your planning, your relationships all look very different today than last month. Everything has changed, but nothing that is eternal has changed. And nothing that has changed is eternal. Let me repeat that. Everything has changed, but nothing that is eternal has changed. And nothing that has changed is eternal. We all know that regardless of the virus that we're dealing with, any phone call from the police station, any diagnostic call from the hospital could change everything. But nothing that is eternal would have changed. Last night, I received this text from my lifelong friend. I asked him for permission to read it to you. He told me I could. Gary, please remember me in your prayers. I've encountered some excruciating pain last night and today. Nerve pain is unpredictable, and last night scored over the top and made it impossible to sleep. I know God is sovereign, and I don't have to understand everything. I did pray for God's mercy to relieve my pain this morning. I am back to my main request. Help me, Jesus. So for my dear friend and brother, navigating this pain, there's no other place to go. It's all been stripped away. Help me, Jesus. Suffering has a way of exposing your true heart to yourself. On the one hand, those quote, nominal Christians, for them, suffering may expose that their faith is not real. All along, it seemed like a nice add-on to go well with other nice things in your life, but it's never really mattered to you, and Jesus has not really been essential to your life. And when suffering hits, you turn anywhere else but to Jesus. And that exposes a lack of relationship with him. And at that point, my plea to you would be to look to Jesus, to be saved, to believe in him as your Savior, to turn to him. He is the only evidence of God's grace that is eternal in in our lives. On the other hand, for believers, suffering strips away everything else but Jesus. And we realize that while those other things in our lives are, are, are nice, maybe even great. They are not essential. In this sense, suffering has a way of burning away every rival 
for your allegiance to Jesus. For the believer, suffering clears the path to holiness. I almost hate to say that. But for the believer, suffering clears the path to holiness. Although we'd love to ask God to put the suffering on pause so that we could go through to holiness without the suffering accompanying us there. But that's not the way he's ordained things. God uses suffering to transform us, transform us so that our hope, verse 13, our hope is visible to our unbelieving friends and relatives who have learned just this month that the things that they trust in provide no safety net, that we're all vulnerable. And I ask you this when I began the message, how can God use you in the way that you handle this crisis to glorify him? Well, first of all, verses 10 through uh, 12, keep your suffering in perspective. And secondly, fix your hope on God's grace, that eternal view. So when you're talking with people, and, and we all are talking about this, we'll, we're at times commiserating with one another about this, about how everything has changed. Don't stop there. Continue the conversation. Maybe ask, if all the conveniences in our lives evaporate, what is left for you? And have that be a bridge for a deeper conversation. Or maybe just give your own story. You know, this has helped me reboot my mind to what's important in my life. That's another way of starting a conversation. So keep your suffering in perspective and fix your hope on God's grace. My father's, um, my dad's favorite story that he used to tell, he loved this story, was of a missionary a century ago who was returning from, uh, uh, to America. He was on a ship after investing his life on the mission field, including burying his beloved wife on the mission field. All the relatives that he left behind decades ago were gone. He happened to be on the same large ship as uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, although he never saw him. When they docked in New York, there was a brass band greeting Roosevelt with dignitaries and ribbons and speeches, and, and the contrast was so great for the missionary that he felt really dejected, much less unappreciated. And his prayer was, Lord, I've spent my life serving you, and now when I arrive home, there's no band, there's no greeting, there's nobody, there's nobody at all here for me. And as the story goes, the Lord reminded him, my child, you're not home yet. As Peter said, you have an inheritance imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you all because of God's amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give you praise, to have our minds renewed, to refocus our hope that needs to be fixed on you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word through your spirit to teach us what we need to absorb so that we would be able to glorify you more effectively in and through this challenge. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.